Now, we're beginning our series, Sex, Sexuality, and Jesus. And for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about sex and sexuality and how that relates with the Lord. We'll have some questions and answers, but not during the service. When we close, I'll, I'll just pitch myself here. And if you have questions, anybody at all, please come. Let's just sit here. No, I'll stand. And then let's have a conversation. I do not expect that each, any particular sermon will answer all the questions we have. In actual fact, sex, sexuality has become such like, um, you know when you visit the women who sell kinky and you want to buy kinky and kinky is in the pot on fire and you still want it anyway and they want to get it out for you. They open the sacks and everything and it's boiling and then they get a bucket of water and they scoop water, pour it into it and quickly get it for you. The conversation about sex and sexuality is like that. It's like hot kinky. People are very careful trying to get it out of the pot or else they get their fingers bent. No, 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 no. You just relax. Take it easy. It's only sex. We're going to talk about it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that the word of the Lord and at the heart of it, the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to every aspect of life. And every aspect of life points and should point to you, your purposes, and ultimately for your glory. So Lord, as we go through this, we pray that God, the Holy Spirit himself, will speak to us and change us by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So please uh, keep your Bibles. This is the first one, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 20. Now, a good number of people tend to think that Christians have a negative view of sex and sexuality, just because of the way Christians tend to talk about sex, this, that particular subject matter. Younger people think that you can't really have any honest conversation with the Christians on sex and sexuality. They will kill the conversation before it starts. They will tell you that the Bible says that you should not have sex outside of marriage, period. You either obey it or you go to hell. And then we leave it there. And people have questions about it. Even for some married people, conversations about sex can be a little bit weird. Not for everyone, for some married people. Well, let's limit it to talking about when we want to have babies and you meet my needs, I meet your needs. Did we enjoy it? Did we not enjoy it? All these other stuff. And it ends there. If I didn't enjoy it, I am grumpy the next morning. If I enjoy it, I'm the best husband the next morning or wife the next morning. And for some reason, we tend to always be on the unmarried as though they are the only ones who face sexual temptations. For some reason, I don't know why that is that. The Bible doesn't seem to make that kind of assumption 
that for some reason they unmarried. There are practical reasons for that. But it's not only the unmarried who face sexual temptation. They're married too. Perhaps even more. Recently, we've had matters of, if I'll put it this way, gayism, lesbianism in our media. We've talked about it and all the religious people, Christians, non-Christians, Muslims, everybody, traditionalists, we've all been worked up about it. And then we've cleaned our fists and talked about never in this land. But we don't seem to come to it with the same level of energy when we are talking about, for example, men who have sexual relations with other women other than their wives. Does it come with the same level of energy? So, if we will be very honest with ourselves, perhaps the world looks at us and there seem to be some inconsistencies with these people and to some extent some level of hypocrisy in the way they talk about some of these things. The good news is this. The good news is that the Bible has a lot to say about sex and sexuality. And it is only the Bible that can say it the way it says it. Only God. Only in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what the Bible says about sex actually liberates us. It liberates us to talk appropriately about sex and sexuality and approach it joyfully, approach it differently, approach it with thanks. So, we're going to talk about Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 20. First of all, before we delve deep, you need to understand the context into which Paul was writing. He was writing to believers, relatively new believers, in no other place but Corinth. Corinth. Corinth is the place, this city. You know, there was an old Corinth that was destroyed by the Romans. About 150 BC, it was destroyed. And then they realized that oh, that was a bad idea. We need to rebuild the city. So somewhere 40, 50 BC, Corinth was rebuilt. So a relatively new city with a younger population because the old one was destroyed. Nobody was there. And now a new one has been rebuilt. So people have moved in from other places and they have come. Young people have come. It's a city. It's a commercial hub because of its location. Business is striving, money. You go there to make money. That's where you go and climb the career ladder and make money. You make it there. So, Corinth was not just a place where you make money and you, you sort of, you become someone. It was also a place of sex and sexual energy. So, when you enter Corinth, there was a hill there. A mound, sort of. And then there was a temple on it. And that temple was the temple of um, Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of sex and love. And he was there on this. She, she, she was there on this hill. And oftentimes, you know, during their celebration, prostitutes will come from this temple. And people will just, you know, go and there will be sex celebration everywhere. We just have sex. I mean, what's the big deal about it? And Corinth has this notion because of the nature of the place. It says that here, money, money is the God. You, you, you keep your money close to your chest. You don't give your money away. 
Money is a thing. The reason we came here is to make money. I remember um, growing up, some uh, Ashantis that I know, I knew then, used to tell me that we didn't come to Accra to just go and stand and observe the sea. We came to make money. And so everybody kept their money so close to their chest. So they say that, as one preacher puts it, money here is sacred. But sex, is, we are liberal with sex. We give sex freely. You just have to choose who you want to have it with, who you want to love, and that's it. You just go away. So that was the society of Corinth. But then the early Christians, they lived differently. That is why if you read about the early Christians, they were considered some very strange people within the societies where they were. For them, this was the early Christians. You are liberal with your money. Just give your money away. Money is just transient. God gives it to us. The purpose of um, wealth is generosity. Just give it out. But for sex, sex is sacred. You don't have sex with anybody, Keke, because of their understanding of what it pointed to. So it was the opposite of what the general culture was enforcing. Remember that the population of the believers was smaller. And this was, the, this was the general norm. You were a bit strange if you didn't move along with this general norm. And so there was pressure on the church. There was pressure to now begin to reason things out and then begin to conform. And so sexual immorality was beginning to creep into the church. So you realize if you read um, chapter 5, Something strange was happening. At the beginning of chapter 5, a man was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother, not his mother. Otherwise, that would have been stated. But with a stepmother. Something that even the society would frown upon for some reason. But all kinds of strange things were creeping in because of the pressure. Pressure, pressure in the media. I don't know whether what the kind of media they had then, but pressure in the media. Pressure everywhere. The billboards. The, this prostitute uh, sex celebration, and all these other things. And that pressure pushed, pushed the church to have more like two divided sort of two opinions towards sex, this whole idea of sex. One said, look, even if you are married, to be able to keep your spirituality in focus, Forget about this whole thing about sex. Sex is polluting. Just listen to the way they talk about it. And then the, the way they present the female body and all these other things. Just forget it. Forget it. Here, it is heaven we are going. If you want to stay pure, forget about sex. Even with your spouse, unless it is absolutely necessary. Unless you want to have a second child. Forget it. Let's fast and pray. Let's just keep our focus. Now, you see that in chapter 7, verse 1, isn't it? And Paul, where Paul says that, now concerning the matter about which you wrote, you have said, and he quotes them, it is good for a man not to have sexual relation with a woman. Just forget it. Just stay pure. Or you can enter heaven. But there was this other attitude that the text will show us. And the attitude was that everything is permissible. Everything is permissible. After all, so long as I'm not harming anyone, I'm not harming anyone. Look at chapter 6, verse 12 to 13. I have 
the right to decide what is right and what is wrong for me. You have the right to decide what is right, what is wrong for you, who to love. These things, look, they are private matters. Christianity is a matter of the heart. How can people actually say that? Well, they'll say that because there was this misunderstanding of grace then. It was like, I have my tickets to heaven. I have been justified. I'm saved already. What I do doesn't really matter. We are all not perfect, and therefore, it, it, it's okay. Look, you decide. At the end of the day, what goes on in your heart is what matters. Everything is permissible. Everything is lawful. I can just go on. Now, the reason they say that, the reason they say that is that people in the church, some people within the church circles were beginning to think like the society. And look at how they think. Verse 13 of chapter 6. Sex is like an appetite, like food is, uh, sex meets an appetite, like food meets an appetite. If you are hungry, what do you do? You eat food. If you have the urge for sex, you have sex. Biologically, that's how it's been worked. And mind you, it is God who gave it to us as a gift. God has made us to feel hunger for food, so we will eat food. God has made us to feel hunger for sex, so we will have sex. It is a natural appetite, brothers and sisters. Don't be worked up about it. You see the logic of that argument. Christianity is all about, it's all about a matter of love in your heart. And then Paul takes that same argument, particularly of the second one. He deals with the first one later, but he takes the second one, and then he says... Yeah, even if everything is permissible, don't do things that are harmful. He says, everything is permissible. Um, I have the right to do everything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Some things are actually harmful. And then he says, well, you say again that everything is, uh, um, I have the right to everything, but not, don't let anything enslave you. So sure, go ahead, but... God has given this biblical wisdom. Do nothing that is going to be harmful to you and others. Do nothing that is going to enslave you. So even if you take the world's wisdom, take it to its logical conclusion. Don't do it. So the pressure has led to this wrong view about sex. This wrong view because ultimately when you look at the text... It's, it's, it's springing from a wrong view about the physical. Oh, sex doesn't really matter. I mean, it's dirty. It's negative. There is something about the physical, about the body that we haven't understood in the Bible sense. And oh, have sex with whoever you want to have sex. There is something about the body that you haven't understood in the way God has made it. So let's come back to verse 9 to verse 11. I'll try and finish on time. Or do you not know that wrongdoers, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So the question is, these, these, 
these people who have this as a lifestyle. Now, mind you, he's not talking about the guy who something happened, visited your friend and something happened and then you tripped and this thing took place and then he repented and said, did you do it? Ah, you're not going to heaven. He's talking about a di- this is a lifestyle. They are steeped in it. This is, where, this is what they are. That's why he describes them with these things. Not just those who do them, but this is what they are. They're not going to heaven. They're not going into the kingdom of God. They won't be in the new creation. So the question is who will be in the new creation? The answer is verse 11, those who were washed, who have been washed, those who have been sanctified, those who have been justified. They are all in the passive. So those to whom God has done this, But here's the thing. These kingdom people, now that they have been washed and sanctified and justified, they have a kingdom worldview of everything, including the body. It is not that because they don't do these things, oh, they are the ones who will go. No, 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 no. Those who by faith have been washed and sanctified and justified, everything changes. Their whole worldview changes. The way they see particularly the body and sexuality changes. It becomes kingdom. So how then should we approach sex? How then should we understand it? The first one is this. Sex is a union. It's a union. Now I'll come to it, but let me say that the term um, um, which says here sexual immorality is not just fornication, which is unmarried having um, sex. It's actually uh, standing there to mean something like illegal sex. Any form of sex outside of the marriage walls is illegal before God. And he's explaining that when sex takes place, it is a union. It is the joy. It's not, it's not, there's nothing like casual sex. It is a union between two bodies. Two bodies come together to form one. It is that physical expression of that when it comes to sex. When two people, man and a woman, have sex, they become one body, whether or not they are married. So look at verse 15 to um, 17. Paul then focuses on the prostitute. Shall I take a Christian and unite them with a prostitute? Never, he says, Never with an exclamation mark. And perhaps he has in mind prostitute because that that is a norm. Everybody knows about it in Corinth. And then he's going to apply that to any form of sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. He says, it is a terrible thing to have sex with a prostitute. The question is why? The answer is because you become one with her. You become one with her. In sex, the bodies are joined because that is how God has declared. Genesis 2, 24. The two, and Paul calls it, the two shall become one flesh. As I said, nothing casual. Like when I'm hungry, I go to Kofi and then I ask Kofi, what is around here? He says, oh, somebody sells Gary and beans, gobe. I said, just get one for me. You can't say, <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't use that illustration. Otherwise, your imagination will go 
wild. And that may not be good. So shall I take somebody who is united with Christ, become one with, I'll come back to this in a minute, and unite with a prostitute? Never. Why not? Because when it comes to the prostitute, this is what happens. When you go to a prostitute, what do you do? You go to a prostitute, you ask for sex, you are charged for it, you have the sex, and off you go. There is no other connection, there is no other obligation except the physical union. You have the physical union and you go away, isn't it? That is what happens. And so Paul is saying, ah, 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 he's on to something serious here. He's making the point that as far as sex is concerned, you see the prostitute, go to her, have sex, have the physical union, go away. You have no legal obligation to her except to pay her her money. You have no social obligation to her. You have no, in your mind, spiritual obligation or economic obligation except to pay your money. And then off you go. You may not even see her anymore except that you become her regular customer or his regular customer. And he's saying that that is terrible, not because she's or he is a prostitute, but because there is a bigger reason. The bigger reason is this. When it comes to sex, do not, he argues, seek to become one with a person through sexual union when you are not prepared to become one with them in every aspect of life. And he's going to use Christ to explain that sex is a crown of something. It's a crown of a commitment and a union that has already taken place. And so when this isn't there, do not be prepared to do that one. Because sex is an apparatus. It is something that God is using to show something. It is the highest expression of oneness. And that is why good sex is beautiful. If it is done properly. Don't ask me how is it done properly. <laughs> because it is the highest expression of oneness and it shows that you have become one with the person legally and socially and economically and spiritually. It's not like that with a prostitute. It's not like that with your girlfriend. These things haven't taken place or with your boyfriend. There is something... That is lying about it. I love you so much. I want to give everything to you. And so to express that I have my body, you've jumped the gun. If indeed that is true, why don't you then go through, if you are indeed in love, you want to be physically vulnerable, that is naked to a person, be naked about your finances, be naked legally, be naked socially, be naked everywhere, then you would be telling the truth. Otherwise, no matter the um, emotional expression, you are lying. That's not how the Lord has designed it. Sex is a way that you give your life to another person. You become one with them. And that is why as couples regularly come together in sexual union, in God's wisdom, it enriches. It strengthens and enriches the relationship, the covenant that is between them. Many times they come together in sexual union, whether or not they are aware, they, they renew this covenant that is between them. But what is wrong if the two people consented to it? Two adults, mature, 
And then they consented to it. Well, let's talk about consenting to something. When it comes to the scriptures, consenting is not, will you have sex with me? Yes. Will you have sex with me? Yes. And then we all consented and then we did it. No. Consenting is actually agreeing that before this takes place, I consent to this legally. Before the Lord and before wherever I live, I consent to this socially. I consent to that. And that is why he uses the prostitute as that. Just touch and go. Physical union, the other things do not matter. And it's horrible if I am interested in just the body. And the, but oh, no, 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 this one, I want to be, I want to lose my freedom physically. But oh, these other areas about my finances or socially or all these other things, I just want to guard. I like what happens in traditional weddings in Ghana. This is what happens. So you take your stuff as the man, the things that you're going to beautify your bride with, as it were. So you take them. <laughs> Some people will say the list have been given. Don't call them the list. The gifts that you have been asked to bring. And then you display them. And the parents are there. Everybody sees them. Cloth, this. That and that. I have a confession here. <laughs> so when we're getting married, long list. And one of them says that you've got to put <clears throat> a check or money in an envelope and give to your wife. Big money. I looked at it. I didn't have that kind of money. So then I consented with my wife, my wife-to-be. If I give it to you, you are the same person going to spend it, Right. Right. Why don't I just write the figure on paper, put it in the envelope, and then we put it there. You just give it out. It will come to you. This one, I'm not deceiving because we've agreed. And then she said, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. So I wrote big money. Put it in an envelope. Gave it to her. Gave her a wink. I've done it. And then when we went, asked for the father's proper cash, the mother proper cash, yours, you get it. As we journey through life. <laughs> <laughs> so the things are brought, right? Now I know some of you are distracted. You are now beginning to check whether this is deception or not. Please come back home. The things are brought and then they ask the woman, do you give your consent that we should accept these things from the man? And she says, yes. As soon as she says yes and the family accepts and everything, do you know what he, she has done? She has said that whatever traditional legal thing is there and the social thing is there and all the spiritual thing, I consent to be fully and wholeheartedly committed to this man. And by bringing the things, you're also saying that I consent to be fully and wholeheartedly committed to this woman. Now, the pinnacle of this expression of commitment is that consummation. If that is able to happen. Sex happens to crown it. It's, it's, it's a commitment display. All that happened, now you and I, I want to demonstrate that to you. If sex is not used in this way, time is going, it becomes destructive. The same great glorious gift because it has not been used in God's way, becomes destructive. And then it destroys people 
if you want to hurt someone, someone with whom you are in a relationship or whatever, have sex with them. Because in that, as one preacher noted, you become so vulnerable. That's why if somebody barges into your home and then rapes, that is incredibly painful. But the person eats your food, it doesn't matter. Just, just the person go. But this one is not like that. Um, if you are in a relationship and there is sexual union and the relationship doesn't work, especially the ladies feel this the most, you feel so cheated. Why? Did a person run away with your bag? No. Something deeper. There has been a physical union, but he is not prepared to have this other union. It doesn't work. It has to go hand in hand. And even when there is sexual union before marriage, when the marriage is on, there is... The we, we ask God for intervention, but there is distraction. Either one continues in that trajectory or trust is hurt big time. Sex without this whole life commitment makes this gift destructive to us. Now, it is, it is like a river. Recently, I was on a, a very nice river. I didn't even know there were such rivers in Ghana because everything has been spoiled with Galamse. Beautiful blue river with trees on the bank and birds singing. And it was quiet and calm. And then you were on it. Beautiful. The same river, God has given boundaries to it, right? And so long as it stays within the boundaries, it's fine. And we all cruise on it. But let the same river overflow the boundaries. And then it destroys lives and properties. So is sex. That the Lord has given as gift to express these things time. The second thing, the second reason. Sex is designed and given by God to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, the biblical view, the Christian view of sex is that you can't separate it from God's work in and through Christ. You can't separate it from it because one expresses the other. The sexual union expresses this one. This is the reality. This is a picture. It shows the saving love of God for us in Christ. It shows the gospel. And so sex is designed by God, this wise God, as a, um, as a dim, very dim, very imperfect, yet a very real foretaste of our own union with Christ when he returns. Uh, the wife of Tim Keller is called Cassie Keller. She says this that I had never thought of. She says, the reason Christ didn't get married is that he's already engaged to the church. Now, if he had gotten physically married, then we'll all be confused by Christ's marriage. Then we'll make marriage into the ultimate, isn't it? But he, he refused to get married. Because he's already engaged to the church and he's awaiting the consummation when the church will walk through the aisle and be brought to him, and then he will have the church, his bride, and be united with the bride and the bride with him, his people, for all eternity. And so he says in verse 17 of chapter 6, But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Sex is a picture, isn't it? A picture of Christ and the church in union. 
one body. So we refer to the church as the body of Christ. And when Saul was persecuting the church, the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? There is, there is this union and it is waiting the consummation. In sex, there is giving and then there is giving. Sex is never meeting your husband's needs, even though sometimes it looks like it. Forgive us. But it's never like that. Or meeting your wife's needs. Sex is self-giving, mutual self-giving, this way and that way, and united. Because it reflects Christ giving himself completely to us in the incarnation when he became a human being. And then on the cross when he gave himself, he didn't hold anything back. He gave himself completely. Now, by the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, he has freed the church that we are also called to wholeheartedly give ourselves to him. He gives himself to us, we give ourselves to him in response. Before the consummation on the last day, Christ is the one who has met every legal obligation by God, by the law. He's met every legal obligation so he can have the church as his bride. He has done the proper thing. He has done the right thing. And that we don't do it because, yeah, you just go and sign something in the law because it reflects something. God in his mercy, even for non-Christian culture, he's in, injected it into it. That he may reflect the Lord who fulfills everything in order to have the bride for himself for himself, and then we have him for himself, uh, for ourselves, as our Lord, him and no other person. We don't lust after any other Lord. So, hopefully we're beginning to see sex is a gift that serves as an imperfect but a real foretaste of this pleasure of having Christ in us and us in him, one with him. Anytime we come together, may the Holy Spirit help us to think about some of these things. It's not like every day <laughs> before you come together in sexual union, then somebody will pick the Bible and try to quote where, no, that's not what he's doing. How is this going to reflect before you realize she's asleep? So that's not what he's talking about. But let it form part of our thinking. This is why, this is why I have to, okay, let's not talk about that. That is for marriage works. I like what um, Tim Keller, writing with his wife, says here. What makes sex outside of marriage wrong is that it fails to make our love and physical union conform to the pattern of this divine love and the spiritual union with Christ. So the reason the Bible calls us not to have sex outside of marriage is that it will not reflect this purpose, this picture. And once it doesn't, it becomes harmful. You miss the blessing and you embrace harm. It creates, it creates problems now or later. And I'm finishing off. You'll be glad to know. So the point is this, of this point number two. The point is this. Sex is supposed to honor and resemble 
the one who has given himself wholly and completely to us so that, uh, to redeem us, so that we would also respond to him by freely and wholeheartedly giving ourselves completely to him and to him alone. That is how kingdom people, the way he began this section, that is how kingdom people approach sexuality. Our whole lives, including our sexuality, belong to the Lord. Our bodies, our sex life in marriage reflects this. So if this is true, why, why, why are we so inclined to have sex outside of marriage? Why? Knowing what, what God, at least beginning to get an idea of what God has designed, why are we so inclined? Why do, especially men are prone to do, not exclusively men, lust after other people, other women? Why? What, what's going on here? Well, the reason is quite simply sin. Sin in our hearts. Sin in our heart tells us that, tells us a number of things. It tells us that we fall short. It tells us that the grass is greener on the other side. It tells us so many things, and it tells us that we need to make up for it. We, we need to make up for it. We need to do something. So we begin to long for something. We want to belong. We want to feel accepted. We want to feel loved and valued. And brothers and sisters, let me say this to, as I finish off. Uh, just be sometimes a little bit, hold your gun. In, um, when you find a young man, a young lady, living a promiscuous life, or a wife who has been tempted, and, oftentimes, more often than not, it is this. It is not that this person is so spoiled. You are spoiled. But there is a deeper reason. The deeper reason is this feeling of wanting to belong, wanting to feel accepted, and loved, and valued, and cherished. For somebody to comment about a part of your body and your physique. But here's the thing. You will not find it in having sex outside of marriage. And then you will also not find it in having sex within marriage. They are pictures of the reality. The reality is that you will only find this acceptance and find this sense of being loved and belonged and valued only by faith in Jesus when you receive God's love offered to you in Christ. So if promiscuity has been your lifestyle, if you're listening to me online, I urge you, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus by faith in him. You see the way we started he will wash you. He will sanctify you. He will justify you. And then you will have the freedom by the power of the Spirit to now begin to rewrite your sex life history. He will give you what it takes to have the sexuality that God has created for you in Christ and by Christ to honor him and to glorify him. So look, look, look at verse 20. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God with your sexuality. The Lord will help you to do that if you come to him by faith in Jesus.
Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of sex and sexuality. Help us to place it in your hands, in your context, that we might live in obedience to you, which is for our own good and for your honor and glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.